Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 28. If you've listened to past episodes, you realize we generally stick to topics which turf managers can identify with across a broad range of the United States. In today's episode, we're taking a look into a not so new, but problematic pest which is expanding in range, but doesn't yet have the geographic distribution of other more commonly known insects such as ABWs, mole crickets, or grubs. Today, we're talking about the European crane fly. My name is Dr. Jeff Atkinson, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Raymond Snyder. We serve as directors of agronomy for Heralds. Our guest today is Dr. Ben McGraw, Associate Professor of Turfgrass Science at Penn State University. Dr. McGraw is a leading entomologist in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast regions of the United States. He has a unique ability to communicate the details of insect biology and management in a way that even a non-turfgrass professional can understand. And for those reasons, we're excited to have him as a guest on the Turf Dudes podcast for a second time. All right. Uh, I guess about this time, spring of 2020, I received a bunch of phone calls or several phone calls looking at possible control options for giant mosquitoes. And as it turns out, the insect in question was obviously not a mosquito, but rather a crane fly. And that kind of led to our conversation today. So I've heard a couple of your talks over this year, either Harold's talks or non-related talks mentioning different uh, aspects of crane fly biology, uh, control options, management options. So before we get into all of that, can you just kind of give us an overview of you know, what is a crane fly? What are the different, is there one species, multiple species? You know, what, what are we dealing with here? Yeah, so when we're talking about uh, crane flies, we're actually talking about a much larger group, like a family level, um, the tapulids, which are really large they're kind of awkward flyers but they're fairly large bodied um insects they're very common moist areas um so you might see them around pastures that are moist or running along a stream so it's not just golf courses but uh home lawns as well any place where uh, they can satisfy that that moisture requirement for uh, many of the species lots of species um you know i'm i'm kind of partial to the weevils and we're talking 60,000 species of weevils on the planet. There are only 15,000 species of crane flies on the planet. Um, you know, here in Pennsylvania, we might have three to 400 species. Uh, so they're very common. Out of the 15,000 that we have on the planet, only two species, two, are problems on any sort of agricultural system. Unfortunately, both of those are problems in turf. Hmm. Wow. And wow. to put a, another great story to it, when I was at the University of Massachusetts, we had this uh, room where we'd have entomology seminars named for Charles Alexander. He described 10,000 of the 15,000 species. Uh, so if you want to put it in perspective, that's, you know, naming a species, identifying it as different, doing one a day for about 27 years. So pretty How impressive. How are you differentiating the species? Or just by the color, the size, the... You know, well, what, what, Raymond, usually we have to look at the genitalia, but also oh. wing patterns and whatnot. But yeah, we like to look at the genitalia as entomologists. That, that's really the clincher. Well, wasn't expecting that answer. Okay. <laughs> so what are, the, what are the two species we're dealing with in turf? What are the problematic species? Yeah, so the two problematic ones, uh, and just to get it super confusing, lose all your audience right out of the gate. That's what we try to do. They're, yeah, they're both, we, we refer to both of them as the, uh, as European crane flies, but we have one species that the common name is 
the European Crane Farm. I kind of like that university to the west of me, the Ohio State University. <laughs> you know, they, they put that the there. And then the other one is called the marsh crane fly. So we have two species, both European crane flies, both invasive. Uh, if we were to go play golf, which I would imagine Harold's is going to take me to across the ocean and play golf someday. Uh, <laughs> but if we were to be in England or in Scotland, we'd also see that those are two species that they would have overlapping there. And that's what we see in this in North America. Um, Ontario, Buffalo, New York, Detroit, the Pacific Northwest, both you can have both of these species at the same time. Uh, and their biology, their seasonal history is very different, which totally makes it even more confusing. So so which turf species exactly succumbs to the effects of the, the crane fly? Well, you know, I think in all the studies that I've seen, and there's been a lot of studies in the United Kingdom done um, throughout the decades, and, and some here in the West Coast as well. So it's been a while since people have looked at species, but it, it really doesn't seem like species is a big factor. It's more about satisfying these conditions of moisture, especially around egg laying. So if they, those eggs, when the, the insect lays eggs into the soil, according to the textbooks, if they don't have moisture covering that egg for two to four minutes, they will collapse. And those eggs will hatch out in about 10 to 14 days. So it's got to be a saturated environment. So it's not like, um, you know, they don't attack Bermuda grass, so they're not going to invade our so southeastern portions of, of the continent. It's more of, uh, you know, they'll attack Kentucky bluegrass, perennial ryegrass, higher heights of cut. Uh, so site conditions are really important. Uh, very rarely do we see them in putting surfaces, like in the interior of the putting surface here. My people that I work with in the United Kingdom, uh, they primarily see it within the, within the interior of the putting surfaces or maybe uh, are less concerned about it in the periphery. But here, you know, athletic fields, home lawns, um, golf course roughs are, are problematic. Not to say that we don't get them in the putting surface. We had a few reports last year within the interior. But I think, you know, those are typically drier areas, a lot of putting surfaces having you know, good flow through the profile, sand-based root zones, that, that probably limits them to quite an extent. So theoretically, both warm and cool season species might be susceptible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the warm season aspect is a little bit difficult for me to say. I think um, the marsh crane fly, uh, we can see it in drier environments. But it's still, even where, you know, we did a study, uh, my colleague Adam Van Dyke in Utah and I uh, did a study where he detected them in Salt Lake City. Uh, so very arid environment, but it had been brought in in nursery stock from Oregon. Uh, so it was able to establish on a golf course there in these drier environments because it's native to more central and northern Europe, whereas the European crane fly, Tipula pallidosa, is more uh, northern Europe. So that mm -hmm. one seems to be even more sensitive to, to moisture conditions. Um, the other one, the marsh crane fly, we can find it in dry areas. Um, that one's less of an issue, I think, in, in my travels. I don't see a huge amount of damage. Again, last year was an exception uh, right out of the gate in February at a couple of places within putting surfaces. So making me look like I don't really know anything. 
<laughs> but uh, I don't see, I mean, there are models. Um, Matt Peterson, uh, who is a postdoc in Dan Peck's lab at Cornell a couple of years, did great modeling approach looking at world geography and where it could invade. And he had it invading more southern environments. But for the most part, you know, in North America, it's, um, you know, a lot of the Northeast is susceptible, the Pacific Northwest, Ontario especially, um, you know, and you'll see damage underneath greens covers in winters, uh, the Maritimes as well, uh, in British Columbia. So so what does the damage look like for those that, that might be uh, have an outbreak? Yeah, so I think they're, I think we're all really good at educating people about white grubs and about what the white grub life cycle looks like and when damage would appear, and this is kind of flipping that on its head. But there are some similarities there. I think the damage is very similar. It starts as like, you know, something that you might not notice. And, you know, some of these sites where we do field trials are just dripping with larvae, just maggots all over the place. And you just don't see that damage being expressed on the surface because these are wet areas. You know, you, your average golfer is walking by it, not noticing it. Uh, but if it's severe and, and you have another stressor like heat, what we'll see is like a little thinning, um, maybe a little bit of chlorosis. Uh, on short turf, if it were to get into the interior of the putting surface, it looks like one of our other turf grass insects pests, the black cutworm, it will cause like a depression. So this insect lives in a burrow, uh, or these insects rather, they come to the surface at night and they'll prune the foliage. Uh, and then they'll also feed on the roots. So it's kind of double damage there. Uh, but where, you know, sometimes they'll get into aerification holes and feed like a cutworm where they get lazy and they just stick their head out and they prune around the hole and that sinks in like a ball mark almost. Uh, so you can see like these individual pock marks. So, you know, um, I was just looking on social media today and they're getting beat up in the UK right now. Um, and, and that almost looks like dollar spot to, to some degree. So they're just really uniform. Uh, but that's probably from the tunnel coming to the surface, just pruning it back. Um, so the, the root damage can, you know, if it's in a wet environment, maybe uh, it can handle some damage to the roots and not be overly effective uh, or affected. Uh, the higher height of cut probably gives you a, a pretty good leeway as well. Does it occur rapidly like a blight or is it more of a slow progression that you, you may you have to be attuned to picking up on the the expression of the symptoms over a period of time? Yeah, I think it's a it's a sneaky one. Um, so these insects, unlike white grubs that typically move lower in the profile in wintertime, these guys will stick right in the top couple of inches of the soil very impervious to freeze thaw. And I, I can think of several places in Ontario that use covers on their greens. You know, that's insulating it. Snow provides a nice insulation factor as well. Uh, and that is like you pull back your greens cover. And we had this in Pennsylvania last year from the marsh crane fly, which we typically don't see damage from. Pull back the covers and it just looked like bleach spots. So uh, you know, just like winter damage on a golf course, it's kind of a helpless feeling. There's not much you can do to correct that while it's going on. You just have to wait for winter to come through. And and that's often where we'll see damage from that species. The other species um, can be really problematic. 
in springtime and and just like white grubs you'll have skunks and raccoons other vertebrates come in dig up the turf so that you know is very similar to white grubs and, and and that damage is pretty easy to spot but you might not know that you have that going on below ground so along those same lines what's the general life cycle of these things does it follow the same life cycle as white grubs or you say it kind of flips it on its head yeah the- so that's where it gets really confusing so we have the marsh crane fly which i say is the lesser of the two evils that has two generations per year the european crane fly which is really damaging has one generation per year. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's um, kind of how they develop. So both of them will have an egg stage that they're you know, born into, have four larval instars, and then become a pupa, and then emerge as a fly. Those four larval instars, what's important there is, when is it going to do the most amount of damage? It's going to do the most amount of damage when it's growing the fastest to get to that final instar. So it's really... That third instar that I'm most concerned about. So the marsh crane fly is going from a third to a fourth in the wintertime, and that's where we're going to see the damage. Now, it will happen again in, in the end of summer and to, to fall, but um, typically we don't see a huge amount of damage. We saw a lot in the United Kingdom this, uh, this fall, or really it's shifted up, so it's like August for them. Uh, with the European crane fly, just one generation per year, but it is um, basically through the winter, it's going to be third instar. It's going to feed rapidly in springtime to get to that fourth instar in spring and then just hang out deep in the soil. Not, not overly deep, but in the soil, just hibernating, estivating throughout the winter. So where it goes from a third to a fourth is going to be in the springtime. And so that's where we'd expect to see the damage at that time. So yeah. one is like right now, like, people realizing that they might have marsh crane fly another two months or a month and a half from now, we would typically see European, the European crane fly damage. So if you see the fly, has the damage already been done or can they overlap between the, the instars and the fl- the visualization of the actual fly itself? Yeah. So that's a great question with the fly. They're very apparent. And especially in 2020 where we had mass swarms, that's where everybody noticed like, Oh wow, I've got, (laughs) I've got a problem. And this problem has been building for a couple of years. Uh, the fly, you know, the damage is done because that, that insect stage is not going to feed. Um, you know, they're, they might drink water, but they are probably going to live for seven to 10 days. They're, they're just there to mate and drop eggs. Uh, that being said, both species fly in the fall, and so you can have an overlapping stage, so it seems like a really long emergence period. So you could have one stage finishing up, or one species finishing up its development and causing that damage while the adults are flying, giving that appearance of uh, that being the problem. Uh, we did see last year, especially because it was so droughty, so, so droughty in the Northeast, um, that that damage from the spring really persisted into fall in several sites that I went to visit. Um, and so that's where it could extend into it. But typically in a normal year, you know, they like it moist. They're going to be in, in areas with high annual precipitation. So typically where it's raining and the grass is growing, you can sustain a lot of that uh, root feeding as well as foliage feeding, especially at higher heights of cut. Uh, you might not see it. Um, so usually the tip-off is uh, just what you said, you know, the adult flights and that. But uh, 
typically those things are fairly separate. So in terms of targeting uh, the time for control options, what, what's the general strategy for, for targeting the different control options? Yeah, so there, I mean, very few places are going to deal with one and not the other. So the, I, in my opinion, and I think many of my colleagues would share this as well, is you can get both species at once in fall uh, when they're, you know, both of them are going to be flying as adults in fall and, and one is going to lay its eggs a little bit sooner than the other. But there presents this opportunity to control small larvae in fall. So, and what I'm talking about in, Pennsylvania, that's, um, you know, an ideal timing might be the middle of October to the end of October mm. with, you know, like a contact insecticide. These things are fairly cheap and they work very well. Uh, it's just so counter to everything that we do at mid-October. We're shutting it down. Uh, you know, we're trying to sell all the hot dogs in the clubhouse, get rid of them. We're not yeah. thinking about going out with a sprayer. Uh, so that's it's kind of counterintuitive. We think about spring, getting ready, getting into the mode of controlling pests. Uh, it's a lot harder to control them. The marsh crane fly is going to be a fourth in star in spring. It's a big insect, hard to control. Uh, the European crane fly is going to be a third in star in spring, almost impossible to control with a lot of our insecticides. So a lot of it is is getting people aware that um, you know these things have been on the rise from increased moisture in 2018, 2019, leading to big population outbreaks. The other one is getting in this mindset that you can save a lot of money. Uh, you can use the most effective control is going to be in, in fall and it's going to reduce it into the spring. Well, I was going to ask if somebody's looking to treat in the fall, I guess you could look for flyers and you have an idea of where an infestation may be, but are there scouting techniques that someone could use uh, otherwise to decide where to treat? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, one thing is uh, I would never recommend just like, hey, I heard this is a problem. And I heard on this podcast and now I'm going to buy a bunch of Harold's products and blow them out <laughs> there just because. Uh, so I would want to have some good indication that I did have some larval feeding. Uh, the larvae are very, you know, a lot of the same coloration as uh, the soil. So it's kind of hard to just take a probe, break them apart. But you could do that just like white grubs and be able to detect them in the soil. Uh, the adults are a really good tip-off. Um, I think the, you know, the best thing for crews and golf courses and, and even parks uh, is when you mow these areas that have flies in them, they just fly a little bit in front of the mower. They kind of they'll hit the operator in the face. I mean, those are usually where we get the first alerts. Uh, that and homeowners, where these insects will kind of congregate on white surfaces uh, when they mate. So that's usually an indication that there's something that needs to be done. Uh, and I, I'm kind of in the camp of treating these things curatively uh, in the fall, which is, I say curatively, it's technically preventively against the, the eggs that are coming out, but they're already present. So it, in my mind, it's curative. Uh, but not unless I had a problem would I consider treating for it at that time. Can, can someone send a plug to you? And you identify them in the soil? Yeah, I mean, that that would be one way. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell species apart from the larvae without um, genetic information. And so we'd have to extract DNA from them, send it off for sequencing and, and whatnot. So that's a little bit more involved. 
but the flies, if they can catch the flies, we can get a species ID. Uh, that might help us a little bit as far as uh, timing, but uh, for most practical purposes, um, you know, it would be good to know if this is a native species that we see all over the place and is not going to be an issue whatsoever. And one of these European uh, species, which is, are fairly easy to, uh, for even uh, a novice to, to figure it out with a, with a good hand lens or a microscope that most superintendents would have in their office. So if somebody's looking to find some more information on control options, management strategies, just a refresher on all the biology that we talked about today, do you have a good resource to point uh, yeah, I mean, our, our we we are working on a lab website, so that's uh, up and running. It is a work in progress, and and one of the uh, fact sheets that we have on there is the European crane fly. Um, okay. Since 2020 was such a bumper year, uh, that's a good one. There, there are certain. Um, I, I think the the Cornell resources uh, from the early 2000s still hold true. That you know, there's some products that are uh, you know no longer available, or some better products in there. Uh, I guess you just have to go see me live at one of these Harold's talks or something. So I just got booked for Turning Stone 2021. So oh, wow, so oh, that's my plug for that, John. We didn't even ask you to plug it. That's awesome. Uh, that's the, could could our view? Could our listeners bring their flies to Turning Stone 2021? So most of those guys, you know, the Buffalo crew, they they think this is old hat. They've been doing this for a while, so they don't they don't need my help at all. So, but yes, if you uh, with your price of admission, you can get a fly ID. There you go. I like that. That's good. Well, Ben, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us, as always. Awesome. Yeah, a lot. I like it. It's a neat, interesting topic, and one I, you know, really hadn't. Uh, investigated much, at least you know, from a, a southern perspective. Yeah, hopefully, it's not a problem for you. <laughs> that wraps up our interview with Dr. McGraw. If you're interested in learning more about European crane fly, links to helpful resources and Dr. McGraw's contact information can be found in the show notes. Turf dudes exist to communicate important research findings and ongoing research initiatives to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. If you have a topic that you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. We'll see you next time.